I'm uh, glad to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, you know, we were talking about ch- uh, church plants earlier. Uh, last week, I was uh, privileged to be able to go down to Crestview, Florida, uh, and uh, hang out with the latest Pillar Church plants. Uh, they just launched in fall, in, in this past fall. Uh, one of my best friends from childhood was preaching his first sermon and preached the best first sermon I've ever heard. Uh, there wasn't a string of jealousy in me at all. Uh, it was phenomenal. Uh, did, he just did a, a great job, and so uh, it was really good to be down there. They're um, serving uh, an army unit that is down there, as well as Eglin Air Force Base. Um, just, yeah, doing really, uh, really well. So uh, I was glad to be there with them, but I'm even more glad to be back here with you guys. Um, so again, we're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning. We're starting a new series uh, through the book of Genesis. Now, typically, when people approach preaching through the book of Genesis, there's two different approaches that you can take. One is you can do the 30,000-foot flyover, and you uh, get kind of the overall picture of Genesis. Maybe you spend about eight weeks kind of just hitting the main characters of Genesis. And though you can't get into all the beautiful layers that Genesis has, it's, it's not a bad way to preach through it. The other way is to go through the entire book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This way gives you space and time to see each and every part of Genesis and how beautiful it is as it tells us the narrative of how life began and the origins of the people of God, of of our faith. The only thing with this is, is that if we went through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we might miss the forest for the trees. As you walk through it verse by verse, you can lose sight of the overall arc of the book and forget why it was written in the first place. So again, neither are bad options. Both are great options. What we did is we tried to choose something right in the middle of both of those. And so we won't touch every verse and chapter of Genesis in our series, um, but we'll give ourselves enough time to be able to take a little bit more of a deep dive into the most important parts of Genesis. We're going to pay particular attention to the line of people that will eventually carry on God's chosen line, which is the line through which Jesus comes. And so our goal is that you'll be able to see the overall flow of the book of Genesis, even if we don't necessarily touch every single verse in the book. Now we have a three hopes for this series. More than three, but three particular ones. First, we hope that you'll be able to walk away with a better understanding about the foundations from which the rest of the Bible is built. The rest of the Bible relies so much on Genesis that if you take away Genesis, the rest of the Bible just crumbles. We chose the passages in such a way that it will help you to see these things, which will hopefully help you as you personally seek to understand other parts of the Bible and apply it to your life. So first, we just want you to get the general foundation of the entire Bible through the book of Genesis. Second, we hope that you'll see the seed of the gospel that is sprouting from the pages of Genesis. Though you may not find the word gospel in the book of Genesis, the themes are abundant, and our hope is that you will see it through the series. And third, we hope that you will be able to see God in full display as we see His majesty, His grace, His mercy, judgment, holiness, glory, personableness, love, and on and on and on throughout the series. So we want you to see the foundation. 
We want you to see how the Gospel starts in the very first book of the entire Bible. And we want you to see the character of God. So this particular morning, we're going to be in Genesis 1, um, verse 1 through uh, 2, uh, verse 3. So I'm going to read through that, pray, and then we will dive in. It reads again, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. There was evening, and there was morning. One day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So, God created man in His own 
image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Lord, we are grateful that you have created us. We're grateful that we know you, Lord, that you have made yourself known to us. Lord, that we are made in your image, Lord, to reflect you. Spirit, I I ask this morning as we dive into your word and what it means for us, would you help us to truly behold you, to see who you are, Lord, that it wouldn't just be, uh, that we wouldn't just see a list of um, attributes or propositions and feel stale about them, Lord, but that you would awaken our souls to you and who you are. Spirit, it is through your work that dead things come to life and living things stay living. So help us to be able to experience you this morning, to be able to experience your love in a fresh way. Help us to know you, Lord, to be in awe of you, and then to live out of that. Spirit, speak through me. Use me, Lord, so that we can all know you more and that we can have our lives continually changed by your work in us. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever been somewhere just enjoying your time, maybe at a party, some sort of social gathering, just at a friend's house, and someone walks into the room and there's just something about them that immediately commands your attention? And I don't mean because they're, they're famous, like you know them for some other reason. It's, it's one thing for a famous athlete or musician to walk into a room and everyone stops and stares because of their fame. It's something that's outside of them. That's different from what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who just has that it factor. There's just something about them. They're, you don't know them. No one else in the room really knows them, but there's just something about their presence that just causes people to pay attention to them. You can't quite name it, but you just know that this person is different, almost like they're better than the rest of us. It's referred to sometimes as command presence. That's what Genesis 1 is 
for us. Though many people like to have debates and arguments about the age of the earth and whether creation took place over a little or six days or thousands or hundreds or millions of years, that's not the point of this passage. It's not about the length of creation. Instead, this passage is about the Creator Himself. You see, Genesis wasn't written in an ivory tower by a guy in a tweed suit smoking a pipe and musing over philosophies that have no real context for our lives. Instead, it was written in the context of a nation who was one of many, and those many nations all had beliefs, real, genuine beliefs about the origins of the universe and the purpose of humanity, and what was behind the happenings of the world. Genesis is written by Moses to Israel. It's a text that makes real, genuine claims about the origins of the universe and about the supernatural that are very different from the beliefs of the nations around Israel. Again, it's, it's not just musings. It's a real historical claim made against the backdrop of other competing worldviews. And so, as we jump into this, particularly just for our entire series of Genesis, we should know that Genesis 1 has real implications for our everyday lives. Again, it's not written for us to debate or for seminary students to write papers on, though that is the case. Instead, it has real claims to make that deeply impact how we live our day-to-day life. So, today's main idea of the sermon is this. Beholding the glory of God in the act of creation, we should seek to establish His rule on earth. Beholding the glory of God in the act of creation, we should seek to establish His rule on earth. On earth. And so the sermon will be split into those two parts. First, we'll behold who God is. Now, I know behold is a funny word that we don't use in our everyday life, so it's typically a word that I would avoid during a sermon. But the word observe just doesn't get at what we're trying to get at this morning. To behold is to observe something that, that sparks awe in you, to realize it's just something different. And so we're going to behold the glory of God in the act of creation. It's the first part of the sermon, and then we'll see how we ought to live in light of that, in light of the glory of God. So, first, we're going to walk through a couple of things, or a few things that God is. First, we see that God is one. Right from the very beginning, we see a claim. Four words in. In the beginning, God. Because of this, we see that He is a distinct being. God is not an abstract, impersonal force, like the force in Star Wars, or like what lies behind many religions from the Far East. And because He's a distinct being, this also means that God is not just within us in an abstract, impersonal way, or that we are all gods. Instead, God is a distinct being who is out there. 
Just in the same way that I am not Gary, and, but Gary is his own distinct personal being, so God is not just something else. Just in the same way that Gary is a real living being and not an abstract thought, so God is a real living being. Because he is distinct, it also means that he's not just part of creation or is creation itself. Instead, creation is something that comes from God, comes from a distinct being, and is not a distinct being itself. Tracking with me so far? So, first we see that he's a distinct being. Second, we see that God is one of one. He is not like the gods of the Romans, the Greeks, or ancient religions in Mesopotamia, where Israel was at at the time of writing. Because those gods were part of a multitude or a pantheon of gods. Instead, he alone is God. This also means that by nature of being God and only him being God, he is distinctly different from everything else that exists. If he truly is God and is the only God, that means that he is worthy of our attention. And not only worthy of our attention, but worthy of our worship solely because He is God and God alone. So we see up front, God is one. He's distinct, He's unique, and He is one being. Second, we see that God is creator. Again, still just in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this term is a, I'm going to mispronounce this, is a cynic de key. Okay? I don't even know what that means, so I'll explain what that means for you guys. It's when you use a part to represent a whole. So Jesus uses this when he refers to the entire Old Testament as the law and the prophets. He's not leaving out poetry or narrative or anything like that. He's using a part to summarize, to represent the whole. So by saying the heavens and the earth, Moses is clear that God created everything that exists. He's not leaving anything out. He's saying that God has created everything that exists. Now, knowing God as creator has multiple implications for our understanding of who he is. First, uh, I, I hit at this earlier, but it's worth repeating. God is not part of creation. This is a direct contradiction to pantheism, which is a belief that reality, the universe, and, and nature are identical to divinity or supreme entity. Instead, God's not synonymous with nature or creation, but is distinct from it, having created it as something that comes from Him, not as something that is Him. So creation is not an extension of God, but it's something that's created distinctly from God. God is not part of creation. Second, because God is Creator, the implication is that God is sovereign over everything. What do I mean by sovereign? I know that's a word that we toss around a good bit. Well, we often refer to kings or rulers as sovereigns in that they rule over a kingdom with control, 
authority, and presence. And this is what I'm getting at. God rules over everything that exists. Everything in existence with control, authority, and presence. Solely because He is the Creator of all. Much in the same way that the Creator of a new invention should be the rightful owner of it and dictate its purpose and use, so God is the rightful authority and ruler of all that has been created solely because He is the one who has created it. Third, within this, we see that God created everything on purpose. Now, this was a direct contradiction to what other religions in Mesopotamia believed about the origins of our existence. They believed that multiple gods were in war with each other, and as they essentially were fighting, they stirred up matter, and the earth came about because of it. In other words, we we got here by accident. It's also a direct contradiction to an atheistic evolutionary understanding of the world, which also says that we are here by happenstance. Instead, Genesis 1 clearly states that God created everything on purpose. If you look at verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, 14, 20, 24, and 26, we read, God said, let there be blank, and whatever he said let there be, there was. This was no Bob Ross moment with a happy little accident. Instead, God took it upon Himself to purposefully create everything that exists. Fourth, we see that God created everything in harmony. Take a look at verse 2. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Now, for a modern English reader... I don't think that that really hits at what it's supposed to hit at for the original Hebrew reader. Uh, in fact, the words formless and empty should actually be translated as waste and void, which would give us more of the sense of what the Hebrew reader had. These words are supposed to cause the hair on your arm to stand up. It's a signal that the earth was in chaos. Notice it had not yet been declared good. Not only that, but the addition of the word darkness there would have for sure made the hair on the back of the reader's neck stand up because darkness in the Bible connotes evil and death. Now, this isn't saying that God created the heavens, that when God created the heavens and the earth, that he created it bad or created it evil. Instead, it's supposed to create a desire in the reader for something to be made right. We're supposed to look at it and see chaos and want that to be rectified. We're supposed to recognize the undoneness of it and want something to be done about it. And now, graciously, we see that God didn't leave the world in chaos. Instead, we see over the ensuing days that His continual act of creation is an act of bringing everything into order. You see that God separates light from darkness, the waters below from the waters above, and the land from the seas. He puts things in rightful order. What dwelt in chaos before now lives in order. 
but he actually takes it just a step further from just plain order and creates everything to be in harmony. Notice with me what is created on days one through three. On day one, God creates day and night. On day two, He creates the sky and the oceans. And on day three, God creates land. Now, notice these are realms or places. They're areas within this ordered universe. Now, with that in mind, notice with me what God creates on days four through six. On day four, God created the sun, moon, and stars. On day five, God created birds and fish. And on day six, God creates plants, ground-dwelling animals, and humans. In other words, the final three days are when living things were created. You see what's happening there? The days correspond to each other. On day one, God creates the realm of day and night. And then on day four, He creates the rulers of that realm. The sun, moon, and stars. On day two, God created the realm of the sky and sea. And then on day five, He creates the rulers of that realm, the fish and the birds. And then day three creates the realm of land. And then day six creates the rulers of that realm of plants, animals, and humans. This isn't just for us to nerd out over. It has implications for us. God has arranged the world in such a way that each thing has a place for where it belongs. And they all function together to sustain a world in order and harmony. Each realm is ruled by its various creations. Each is made with their own kind. And all of these realms and rulers work together to make the world go round. In this, we see that God is not a God of chaos or destruction, but a God who takes things that are chaotic and gives them rightful order and harmony. This matters for us because in this, we see that there is a right order to things. God hasn't arranged the world in a crazy way, but has given it an order in which things are supposed to be. You see that where he says he uh, created things according to their kinds. Coupled with this, it is in seeing God create order out of chaos that we get the first taste of the gospel. We get the first glimpse of what it means to be redeemed. This should create hope within us as we look around and we see disordered lives all around us and within us. Here we see that it's not a new thing for God to make something beautiful out of something messy. Instead, it's something that He's done from the very beginning of time. We see that it's in God's very nature to make something beautiful from something ugly, to redeem something that is chaotic and to make it right, to give it purpose, to put it into harmony. We see the beginnings of the Gospel and that God takes the darkness and speaks light into it. He takes the waste and void and creates something living, something beautiful. He is a God who can take our messy chaos and turn it into something beautiful and harmonious. So, we see that God is creator and that He created the world with order and harmony. We also see, third, that God is a trinity. God is a trinity. This is one of the most 
complex truths of the Christian faith that I will not be able to, I don't have time to fully explain in full. It requires a, a conversation. Uh, summed up, we believe that there is one God who exists in three persons. Each person of the Trinity is the same in, in essence or being, but are distinct in personhood. I know that that's confusing, and there really is not an analogy to explain it. I'll end up in heresy super quickly. It's something that we can't fully comprehend on this side of, side of eternity, but it is clearly what the Bible teaches. Now, you won't find the word Trinity in Genesis 1, just like you won't find it anywhere else in the Bible. But the presence of the Trinity exists in Genesis 1. Now, we won't find the full tree. We need to look throughout the entire Bible to find the full tree, but it does exist in seed form here. Take a look at verse 2. It says, "...in the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters." This is a mention of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which gives us the first glimpse into the Trinity. Just like the Spirit continues to help turn our chaos into order, He was keeping the chaos contained there, preparing it for the work of creation. So we see the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then if you take a look at verse 26, it reads, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. The plural form there is used, indicating the presence of three persons. But again, they are one God because each verb is in the singular form. So again, you, you won't find the most robust theology of the Trinity in Genesis 1, but it is present. In fact, as you read throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll find that each person of the Trinity was actively involved in the process of creation. In John 1, we find that it is the Son, Jesus, who created the world. When it says that God speaks, it's referring to God the Father speaking, and then Jesus, the Word, going forth and creating as the Father commanded Him to do. It also says that everything in existence was created through the Son. Colossians 1 goes on to tell us the same thing. And to, to again back up that it was the Father's initial plan, Hebrews 11, 1-2 tells us that it was God the Father who initiated the plan of creation which again is supported in John 1 and many other parts of Scripture. And then again, the third person of the Trinity is presence, hovering over the surface of the deep, keeping the chaos contained and preparing it for the act of creation. So, from the beginning, we can see that God exists as a Trinity. Fourth, we can see that God is judge. God is judge. From the very beginning of time, we see this theme, that God is judge, which sets up the rest of the Bible. Because He is sovereign over creation, it can automatically be assumed that He is the rightful judge of creation. Just like the creator of a painting can determine its meaning, so God can determine right and wrong, and good and evil. Not only is it implied or assumed, but we see God rightfully judging from the beginning. Over and over after He creates, you'll read the phrase, and God saw that it was good. 
It's in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 24. And it finally culminates in verse 31, where it reads that God saw all that He had made, and it was very good indeed. From the outset, God determines what is good, and by default, what is not. Not only does He declare things good, but He also declares the seventh day holy, which means to be distinct or or set apart for Him. He determines what is to be set apart specifically for Him. This matters because He eventually will call His people to be holy as He is holy. We also see that He holds the right to bless some things and not others. He doesn't bless everything created. It says that He blesses the birds and the fish. He blesses humanity. And then He blesses the seventh day. He alone holds the right to bless some things and not others. God is the judge of all because He is the Creator of all. Finally, we see that God is personal. This is more than just saying that He's a distinct being. God could choose to create everything and then just leave it alone. He could choose to stay uninvolved in the happenings of everything. Much like a watchmaker creates a watch, turns the dial, and then lets the watch do its thing, God could have chosen to create everything and then let it do its thing. But that's not the God introduced in Genesis 1. Instead, we find in verse 26 that He, excuse me, He is personal. Take a look. It says, Then then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27 goes on to tell us that He does just that. What, What does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, at at its most basic meaning, it means that we possess attributes of God that He gives to humanity and doesn't give to anything else in creation. So we have the ability to reason, to understand, to love, and to know something intimately in a way that nothing else in creation has the capacity to do. Now that last point is, is key. Because we are created in God's image, we are created with the capacity to know Him. He isn't an absent Father. Instead, He created us to know Him and invites us to do that. This, again, sets a foundational understanding for the rest of the Bible. And that God wants us to know Him intimately and personally. Because God is one... He is unique in who He is. Because of that, combined with the fact that He is our Creator, means that He is worthy of our worship. He's far greater and higher than we can even imagine, solely because He is unique in being God. Not only that, but He's beautifully complex in the Trinity. So much so that a full understanding of who He is is beyond our human capacity. And He is the rightful judge of all because everything has come from Him and thus He possesses the power to determine what is good and to bless what He chooses to bless. Each of those is great. But if we leave it there, we're struck with just awe and fear and nothing else. This last part matters because He's also knowable. 
God in all of His infinite greatness, in being so much bigger than we can imagine, so much greater than we can fathom, so much more complex than we can understand, so unique in who He is, has given us, in this room, the ability to know Him. He has chosen to be personal with us, for us to experience who He is. Much in the same way that I enjoy getting to know the complexities of my wife, who is funny, smart, beautiful, witty, and creative, so now God invites us to know Him in all of His beauty, His goodness, His glory, holiness, majesty, and grandness. He has given us the capacity to know Him who created something beautiful out of chaos, who creates good things because He is good, who has blessed humanity, who has chosen to create things in harmony, and who took it upon Himself to give us the capacity to experience the wonder of knowing Him. And the only proper response to knowing this kind of God, to personally knowing this kind of God, is to want to follow Him with everything that you have and to invite everyone around you to know how such a great to, around you to know such a great and powerful God. It's just like how a car person devotes all their life to cars and wants other people to share their enthusiasm. Or crypto people who do the same. Or sports people or Hamilton people. It's in our very nature to share what we find most fascinating and enjoyable. It's the only proper response to coming to know something great and awesome. And God is the most awesome being to exist. And we find that it's not only proper, but it's actually what we were created to do. If you look at verse 28, it says that God gives a command to the man and woman. It says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Humanity was created to expand out over all the earth and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and to establish the rule of God as they went. That's where you see subdue it and rule it. We were originally created to be with this very God, to walk with Him, to love Him, and then to physically expand His kingdom and establish His rule as we moved throughout the entire earth. Now, sin has altered the world as we know it, which we'll see in a few weeks in Genesis 3. Because of this, our senses have been dulled to who God is. And our purpose has been altered. We are now tempted to not realize how great God is, but how great we are, and to try to create our own personal kingdoms. But God is still in the business of making harmony from chaos. Sin may wreak havoc and destroy our lives, but God still makes beauty from our mess. Much in the same way that Jesus did as the Father commanded and created the world from nothing, He did as the Father directed in coming to live in our chaos. He succumbed to the chaos by dying for us, and God is the rightful judge because He is Creator, should have punished us for rejecting Him, but instead Jesus took on that judgment. He paid the price for our rejection of our Creator. And not only that, but He rose again, defeating the chaos once more and creating life out of it. Our response to this should be the same that we were originally created to do. It's just going back to the basics. We should seek to 
establish God's rule in our own lives by repenting of sin and trusting that Jesus has saved us. In doing that, and embracing the truth of the gospel that Jesus saves and not us, we will see our lives redeemed and ourselves satisfied. It will affect every aspect of our lives, which means that God's rule will become established in our lives. And as we experience this redemption of being made new, we'll want to share it with others also. We want others to know what it means to to be satisfied and to know the ruler of the universe. Just like a young child lights up when their mom and dad walk into the house, so we were made to want to know and experience God. What better thing could we offer those that we know? And so today, my, my hope is that you know God. My hope is that you experience His love for you in a way that you never have before. I hope that you see Him in all of His beauty and splendor, to get a taste of His love and to want to give Him your life, to see your life overcome by all that He is, and to want to share that overwhelming love with others. So I invite you now to bow your heads with me. I want you to to think for a moment. It is, it is a difficult thing to continue to know God. Sin continues to affect us and condole us to God's goodness. So I want us just to take this moment to pray that the Spirit would awaken us again to the glory of God over and over and over. And that we would find delight and joy in Him. And as you pray for that, pray that the Spirit would help you to establish God's rule in your own life and that He would help you to share it with others. Let's take a moment to pray through that. Lord, we are thankful that You begin everything with a purpose. Lord, we're not happy little accidents, Lord. But You created us to know You, to see who You are. Lord, I pray as we continue throughout our series in Genesis that we'd remember who You revealed Yourself to be from the very beginning. Lord, I know that it sets the theme for, or the foundations for our understanding for the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, Lord. So would you help us to continue to fall more and more in love with you? I personally know it can be easy to read through a list of who you are, a list of your characteristics, your attributes, and to not be moved. Lord, for some reason, just to be dull um, to it. Spirit, I pray that you would come in to awaken our souls to who you are. When your word says that your mercies are made new every morning, and we need that, because we still wake up every morning affected by sin. So we ask that you would continue to help us to come alive, to know you intimately, Lord, to find joy and satisfaction in you and you alone. Lord, I pray that primarily, Lord, because if we find joy and satisfaction in you and you alone, then establishing your rule and expanding your kingdom will just come naturally to us. So, Lord, help us to continue to see you and who you are, 
to continue to fall more and more in love with you, Lord. Lord, we love you and praise you. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.